Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series in the book of Revelation today with a message entitled, Rejoicing Over Babylon's Destruction. So turning your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 18, verses 20 to 24, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I have, as we have discussed Revelation 18, talked about the reality of God's people rejoicing at the fall of Babylon. And as I've done so, I have made mention that to some, I mean, that seems inconsistent with Christian virtues. I mean, after all, when Jesus was being nailed to the cross, he was praying for his persecutors, not rejoicing that that they'd soon get theirs. You know, for some, rejoicing at the fall of the wicked, even while it's understandable, is not in keeping with a command to forgive our enemies and to do good to those who persecute us. But have we really understood this ethic entirely? You know, it's true that God's people are to be known as people of love and of forgiveness and even of sacrificial love for our enemies. Um, Jesus taught us to live that way. But that doesn't mean that we don't long for justice. I mean, consider an often forgotten teaching found in Romans 12. Verse 14 repeats the standard Christian teaching. It says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. That's exceptionally difficult to do, and it it requires the aid of the Holy Spirit. See, our natural response to this teaching would be outright rejection. But left as it is, you know, it might seem that God is content with those who persecute us getting away with it, and we're left with a burden of being the victim. And furthermore, critics of this kind of teaching often point out that that it'd be cruel to quote this passage to a woman who's being abused by her husband or any other victim for that matter. But of course, as is with a wide variety of biblical commands, we do well to read the commands carefully. Looking further at Romans 12, we find an interesting comment in verse 19. It says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That is, the knowledge that God is just and that his judgment will surely come, well, that frees believers from thoughts of our own vengeance. Every single believer knows that there are two outcomes for every evildoer. I mean, the first is the preferred outcome. It's that the evildoer might genuinely repent and and be very much like Zacchaeus, the tax collector. You know, he's recorded as telling Jesus, and here I'm reading Luke 19, verse 8, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. But the second outcome is the righteous judgment of God. See, we know that Christ, through his substitutionary death on his cross, has offered every single sinner an offer of mercy and grace. He offers to substitute our judgment for the judgment he received on the cross. You know, it's remarkable for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And furthermore, every Christian understands that we are all guilty and all deserving of judgment. No one is righteous. No, not one. And so when Christians forgive their enemies, We remember that our sins also deserve judgment. But instead of judgment, we have received grace. But we also know that when we refuse the free offer of grace that Christ makes through the cross, we only have judgment. So why should Christians rejoice at the destruction of the wicked? Well, we rejoice because justice is done. Look, justice was done at the cross. And justice will be done at the judgment seat of God. And in either case, God demonstrates his glory. He demonstrates just how righteous he is. Now, when we come to Revelation 18, verse 20, we see another reason for rejoicing. 
You know, the passage says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. So we might hear in those words very similar words found in Romans 8.31. There it says, If God is for us, who can be against us? That's to say, we know that at the end of history, God will rule in favor of his church and in favor of his saints. That will be just. And when God rules in favor of his saints, he demonstrates that he will not forsake his loved ones. He will remember us. Now, this is why we can forgive our enemies. You see, we forgive them out of compassion for them. We know that the verdict is in. God rules in favor of his people. We also know that God is just and no sin will be passed over. And so we're compassionate because we know that at the end of every sin, there will be either repentance and forgiveness or there will be judgment. This is not an unjust world. This is a world where justice will be done. But sometimes God's people have cried out with the words of Psalm 35, verse 17. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. See, it's true that within the boundless wisdom of God, he allows evil to have its day. And that will be the story of Babylon. So we've come to the end of Revelation 18, and and it might have seemed to you that the rejoicing at Babylon's collapse in this chapter, it just goes on and on, and that's so. But that's so for a reason. See, it's important to keep reading the words of Babylon's collapse and the response to it so that we can actually feel when it happens how utter and complete is the final judgment of God. And when we come to the end of chapter 18, John has two more things he wants God's people to see about the destruction of Babylon. First, he wants us to see the consequence of the collapse of Babylon. And second, he wants us to see the reasons for Babylon's collapse. Now, the reasons for the destruction of the city is very important. Seeing the completion of Babylon's collapse should help us come to terms with a basic truth. God's judgment does seem from a human perspective to move forward slowly, and when it comes, it is overwhelmingly complete. I mean, I love the well-known statement that the justice of God moves slowly, but it grinds everything exceedingly fine. Nothing is left undone. Every detail of justice is perfect. See, God's judgment is not like what happens in a human criminal court system. You know, sometimes we know that the sentence of the courts is not just. You know, as has been said, every unjust sentence re-victimizes the victim once more. Once from the hand of the wicked man or woman, and then again at the hand of human courts who don't seek to redress the wrong that was done. And in contrast, God's judgment is so complete and perfect, we will stand in astonishment at it. We will say, how just are your judgments? And secondly, when it comes to the reasons for his judgment, when we see the standard of God's justice, we should fear and we should repent. We don't want to fool ourselves that the crimes against God will be overlooked by a lenient court system. All right, let's start at the consequences of God's judgment. Let's see how complete and absolute is God's judgment when it comes. I'm now reading Revelation 18, verse 21 to 23a. It says, Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters, will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. 
and the light of the lamp will shine in you no more, and the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. As we read through this passage, you should have noticed the repetition of the words, no more. That is to say, this is not a temporary reversal of Babylon's fortunes. This is final. And when we hear the words that are like this, we should think that the judgment of God is always final. We remember also that that hell is final. The words no more should strike fear into every single heart. Notice also that a mighty angel comes forward and, and throws a millstone into the sea as an illustration of the words no more. The millstone will not be pulled up again. Once a millstone sinks to a great crushing depth, it's not coming up, never again, no more. But please also notice that the great city is thrown down with violence. And that word violence that's found here in this text comes from the same root word that is used in Mark 5 verse 13 when Jesus cast demons into the pigs. And and the pigs, as you'll remember, became crazed and, and they rushed down over a cliff and they were drowned into the sea. So the idea is that the pigs met a violent end. It was so violent that no one should think that any of them would have survived. And that's the idea here in Revelation. Babylon is violently brought to an end so that the no more phrase is meaningful in this context. Now, what is it that the no more phrase is referring to? And the answer is that everyday life is no more. And here in our passage, we're going to notice four aspects of life that will never be felt in Babylon again. The first, you'll notice, is that the streets of Babylon are never again filled with music. Streets are now quiet. The downloads have no songs. There's no singing. There's no musical instruments. There's not a single note from the scale that will ever be heard again. No more. Sarah wrote, I have been saved for over 50 years, was just a little girl, in fact. Back to the Bible has been part of my life forever, and I've given to the ministry even out of my allowance when I was little. Dr. Newfeld brings scripture to life. There is depth yet practicality, challenge but hope. The world has changed, technology has made everything closer, ministries have changed. Yet, Back to the Bible has remained constant in its values and teachings. They have embraced technology while making sure the gospel is not diluted. You do a marvelous work and I look forward to hearing you every day. Sarah, thank you. Friends like you make this Bible teaching ministry possible. If you have a story to share, or if you'd like to share a gift of support, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. It would take more time than I have to give to this to do a, a full biblical study of the place of music within God's creation. You might remember that Genesis 4.21 tells of a man named Jubal, and he's the father of all who play the lyre and the pipe. The Psalms are, are full of commands calling on God's people to sing and also to play musical instruments. You know, when King Saul was troubled by an evil spirit, David played the harp, and as the music of David's skill filled the throne room, Saul's deeply disturbed spirit was calmed. 
Music is designed by God to be an aid in worship. Music has often been used to bring people struggling with sadness back to the land of joy. Music can express the depths of human emotion as as nothing else can. Music can motivate us to act. It's often been used by God to bring about conversion. The place of music in the human family, well, is profound. We need music to connect both to God and to our own humanity. Listen, Babylon's destruction is a foreshadowing of hell. I I can't imagine a world where music is never heard again, where instead of singing and the sounds of instruments, of festival and of dance, there is only silence. Never again, no more, means that Babylon and her citizens will never hear a single strain of music again. Music is no more. I mean, that's horrifying. The second category is that the sound of craftsmen plying their trade. I don't need to tell you how how significant is work. Oh, I know lots of folks want to, you know, win the lottery and quit their jobs. But if you want to crush a soul, take away from that person anything meaningful to do or to contribute. Tell that person there's nothing left for you to accomplish, and that person will quickly die. That's why so many people die so quickly after they retire. But the third category under the title of no more, might well be the most devastating. It's the absence of light. When Babylon is thrown down, the light of Babylon dies. You know, in ancient Rome, sometimes after a large festival, when it had become dark and when it was time for everyone to go home, the wealthy would be escorted home by a large entourage of slaves who would carry torches. And those torches would light up the dark streets and they would give them an almost magical feeling. But in the overthrow of Babylon, all sources of light dies. There's no sun to rise over the land. There are no light or lamps to light up the night. There are no festive lights to light up a dark world. There is only darkness. Now, the final no more is the voice of bride and bridegroom. Marriage is the celebration of human intimacy, of walking with one another and of sharing life. But in Babylon, the festivity of weddings are gone. And so the never again or the no more passages refer to music, to meaningful work, to light, and to the joy of intimacy. No more. Now, I've taken the time to deal with this because it is important for us to abandon the bravado approach to hell. You know, my wife and I were watching a one-hour television program the other day, and the show's leading character was conducting a conversation with a priest. And the priest said that no matter what happens, he has God with him and he never fears that he's ever going to be alone. And the leading character in this show in a cavalier fashion says, well, I guess I'm going to hell. And with that, he smiles and in the show, so did the priest. It was cavalier about hell. But going to hell, whatever we think of it, must include the words no more. And these are terrifying words indeed. And merely hearing them And considering such a possibility should lead us to consider our ways. I mean, why would anyone embrace the words never again or no more? And if you, my dear listener, are right now considering your ways, might I urge you to confess your sins to Christ and throw yourself on his mercy. For no one who has come to Christ will ever say no more to singing and meaning and light and intimacy. What an offer Christ makes. Come to him and live. Simply pray, Lord, I'm a sinner and I'm in need of mercy and forgiveness. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and 
I believe he died for my sins. I give you the key to my life. Take me, transform me, make me a follower of Christ. That's a thing to consider. But of course, our passage is not yet done. We've come to the end of Revelation 18, and as we do, we're led to consider the reasons for Babylon's destruction. So let's read verses 23b to 24. It says, For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and of all who have been slain on earth. And I've said that there are two reasons for the destruction of Babylon found in this passage. And the first reason is simply pride. I mean, notice that the merchants of Babylon are called the great ones of the earth. And as we've seen in the past, the, the opportunity is of making money that Babylon will offer, well, those opportunities will be enormous. And in the process, we have to imagine that the merchants' appetites for increasingly larger profits have also grown. And now we find that their wealth has made them the great ones of the earth. They've become the lords of the earth. Wealth can do that. See, I love the contemporary chorus that was written by Keith and Kristen Getty. It's called, My Worth is Not in What I Own. Let me quote the first two lines. My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. See, those words, of course, were inspired by the words of Jesus. Luke 12, 15 records Jesus as saying, And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. See, but the merchants of Babylon will care nothing about those words. It will be for them a matter of unbridled arrogance. They'll scoff at the words of Jesus and their pride will know no end. And when our text says that the nations of the earth were deceived by the sorcery of the merchants, I don't think we're meant to believe that, you know, these men practiced the magic arts. I, I think this means that just like a person might come under the spell of magic, so the earth has come under the spell of these men's pride. But there's something that all of us should know about pride. Both James 4 verse 6 and 1 Peter 5 verse 5 say exactly the same thing. They say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Pride is one of the most serious sins that any of us can have. It was back in the Garden of Eden that Satan tempted Eve by promising her that if she rebelled against God, she could become like God. That is, she would be a God in her own right. Pride, wherever it's found, is an assault on God's throne, and pride, wherever it's found, makes us an enemy of God. God will never overlook pride. He will take the proud man or woman and bring them down. But humility, well, that's highly prized by God. Babylon is the city of pride. And if you're arrogant, if you exalt yourself, if you prefer yourself, well, you're already a citizen of the Babylon that is to come. And the second reason for the destruction of Babylon is the sin of the persecution of both the saints and the passage says, of all who have been killed on the earth. It turns out that Babylon is a bloodthirsty monster that protects her power and her wealth, no matter what that means to the servants of Jesus and to the powerless of the earth. The Bible is not silent about victims. Listen to the words that followed the very first murder that is recorded in the Bible. Genesis 4 verse 10 says, And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying 
to me from the ground. Indeed, in Revelation 6, verse 9, we were back then given a picture. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. See, the reality is this. History is the story of the powerful grinding their victims under heel. Whether it's on an individual level or a large national level, the sad story of this earth is that it has produced countless victims. And here I don't actually mean what happens in war, although one can refer to that as well. See, I'm referring of the need to destroy the lives of some in order to cling to the advantages that the powerful have. When it comes to the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, I would say that every single Christian, especially for those who are in countries where our faith is protected by law, that we need to be in regular prayer for the persecuted church of the world. There are Christians right now who are taxed higher than the rest of the country because of their faith. There are Christians right now who are imprisoned every time they share their faith or lead someone to Christ. There are some Christians right now whose children are refused a higher education if they have taken them to church. There are Christians right now whose churches are being broken into while they're worshiping and people are being beaten on a Sunday morning. Some are in prison and some have been killed. But God hears the cry of those believers rising up like incense before his throne. Babylon will be remembered, and she will be hurled down with violence, for that is the justice that she rightfully deserves. John, thanks again today. Let me ask you, I think, a difficult question. How can we reconcile the whole idea of the lostness of men? You know, we're rejoicing. The end of the world has come. We're going to see a new heaven and a new earth. But we know so many people are lost like Babylon. And we find that tension not only in our own lives. We Actually, it's from the scripture, Ben. You know, the, first of all, we know that the Bible says that God takes no delight in the destruction of the wicked. And yet we know that uh, all of heaven rejoices when the righteous judgments of God are found. So uh, somehow um, we have to hold those two tensions in our own heads. But I mean, let's recognize that more than anything else, believers yearn for God's righteousness to be revealed. So yeah, we, we yearn for people to repent. We recognize that if they do not, God's righteousness still wins. And therefore, I guess we rejoice. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Triumph of the Lamb, Volume 4, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. It may sound early to be planning for a winter retreat in 2020, but now is the time to make sure your spot is guaranteed for the 2020 Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again Southern Caribbean Cruise. Join us February 7th to 16th, 2020 for nine nights aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Curaçao, Bonaire, and more. Not only will you enjoy the beauty of the Caribbean, but throughout the trip you'll be enriched and challenged by the insightful Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfeld, experience laughs and encouragement with Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway, and enjoy special inspirational music, all while being hosted by our ministry team. So register now or find out more by visiting backtothebible.ca 
or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Now don't delay, we're looking forward to seeing you on board.